So thank you so much for joining me, Carol. So, you know, you are a self-described recovering investment banker. Uh, you're also an entrepreneur, TV pundit and host, speaker, um, as well as a, you, you comment on economics, business, finance, finance um, and you are also a New York Times bestselling author, amongst many other things. Uh, but uh, I will definitely, I will be including a full bio so people can uh, get a, a better sense of what you're all about. But you have a book coming out, and that book is called "You Will Own Nothing: Your War with a New, Your War with a New Financial World Order and How to Fight Back." So obviously. That is a play on the infamous WEF article called You'll Owe Nothing and You'll Be Happy. And it was an article that was making some predictions about 2030. And, um, you know, it, it had a lot of controversial connotations for people. I don't think everyone is aware that it's even an article, but I think that would be a good starting point for, for us, you know, is it, you know, I guess clearly it inspired your book. <laughs> uh, it's it's clearly a little bit hot. Give us a little bit of a sense of what, you know, inspired the title of your book and how that connects with it. Yeah. So when you first hear, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. And I stumbled into it first through the 2018 video that the World Economic Forum put out um, with their eight predictions for 2030, which was input from their global future councils. And as you said, that was inspired originally from an article and, and whatnot. When I first heard this topic, you know, you'll own nothing, you'll be happy. You're on Twitter, you're going, yeah, I hear stuff all the time and people get it wrong all the time. It's probably not what, you know, what it purports to be because the World Economic Forum um, is connected with the most elite people in the world, elite business people, elite political folks, elite academics. So how could this group of elite be predicting the end of private property by the end of, of 2030? So like you alluded to, it didn't really take much research to go in and go, oh, no, yeah, they that's exactly what they said. And then going back to the article you referenced, and then in the interim, there was also um, another article called Can You Rent Everything That You Need In Your Life? And so one of the things that the World Economic Forum does is they take these ideas and they, they repackage them and, and try to get them to stick. And, and YOLO nothing um, certainly stuck, although I don't think people were particularly happy about the concept. And that's the part that struck me as somebody who has spent more than a quarter century trying to help people um, grow their wealth and harness wealth creation opportunities and seize the American dream. I know that at the foundation of creating wealth is ownership. The way that you create wealth is by owning things, very specifically assets that have the opportunity to at least retain their value, if not appreciate in value. So it was very staggering to me that you would have this group of elite folks going, oh, you're going to not own anything like that. Your, your path to creating wealth is somehow going to be impaired. And so as I started connecting the dots um, around a bunch of other things that I'm sure we'll talk about, including um, a new financial world order, what really occurred to me is that these people who are very smart and well-connected and, and students of history and also you know, have access to all kinds of information, see what is going on, see the changes in the global economic backdrop. And if you're that person, are you going to just go, yeah, well, stuff's shifting. Gee, I hope it works out for me. Or are you going to use all these resources that you have and proactively try to control all the resources for your benefit and come out on top? And what a clever way to be able to do that and make sure that you come out on top by telling other people, hey, you're going to be happy if you don't have anything. You're getting that buy-in, that, that, com that complicitness of, yes, that seems like a great thing. Although, as we know throughout history, when people haven't owned things, they have not only been unfree, they've not only been unhappy, they've probably been miserable. That is if you know they survived. 
Well, do you think that some of that is because, you know, there's obviously a lot of conspiracy theories around the WEF and, you know, to me, I just see that as a bunch of really sort of powerful people getting together for a conference. And of course, you know, there's maybe yeah. some deals and, and some group think that happens there. And of course, they have some uh, or tremendous influence uh, as to what happens. But, you know, to me, I also think some of this you know, is it is it them deciding, well, let's have, as you mentioned, sort of the elites, and I'd love to kind of have you maybe define that word, but also, uh, you know, are they thinking more for me? Or are they thinking, well, this is my fantasy of the future where, okay, if, if we, if people don't have to, for example, own cars, which is where we're really, we immediately see this already happening, right? There's ride chairs, there's Uber, uh, a lot of people no longer own vehicles, which on the surface might have been an idea that wasn't like a sinister idea. It might have been, <laughs> well, not everybody can afford vehicles. Uh, maybe no, not everybody needs one all the time, especially if you live in, say, the downtown core. Um, you know, you might need one every once in a while. Uh, but of course, at the same time, there's legitimate concerns about the idea of not owning a vehicle because that means you don't have control over your own movements. Uh, so let's let's touch on that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a ton to unpack there. Um, certainly, you know, things that start out as good ideas, as we know often morph into bad ideas. And that's one of the, the things I talk about in You Will Own Nothing, the different models. I was in a, a talk and, and listening to Peter Thiel talk with my friend Alex Epstein, and he kind of put out a, a good ideas to bad outcomes model where it started with these people who really believed in things and then it got co-opted by, you know, he called them racketeers, I called them profiteers, and then they were sort of entrenched by useful idiots. And I sort of take that with the, you know, idea to the return on investment, to return on ego or, you know, right think or wrong think. So, you know, lots of things, you know, saving the planet, like we all want to be good stewards of the planet. We don't want to do things that are you know, going to blow the planet up or, you know, create issues, but that has been, you know, completely co-opted and bastardized in, in many ways. And so I think that, um, you know, the, the, this idea that there are a group of people who are sitting around who want to do things for the good of humanity sounds like a really great cover story um, for people to push their ideas. And I do think you're right. You know, the WEF is very much this boondoggle, this connection of you know wealthy and connected people that have been able to um, make deals and, and improve their own influences by being associated with it. But in many ways, a lot of bad ideas have come out of there. They've become the useful idiots to bring those back into politics um, or into the business realm. And I think in some cases that's you know very much intentional because they also get a benefit out of it. And I think there are some people who are affiliated with them that do have this God complex that they've you know achieved so much and now I'm going to put my imprint on the world but a lot of it, I think, just comes down to that basic greed, power and control and seeing things are shifting and making sure that if they're going to shift, that we're going to help control the shift and put us in um, the best place possible. And that goes to sort of the the other quote unquote conspiracy theory. One of the things I've tried to do in here is bring a lot of tangibility and, you know, quotes and from the horse's mouth and, and sources um, and common sense, frankly, to a di two discussions that have started out sounding very conspiratorial. My background is is known as somebody for, you know has a lot of common sense. I do have a, a Wall Street background. Um, I'm not running around with a, a tinfoil hat. So you know, I'm trying to let these things speak for themselves. So you know, one of them, as I alluded to, is this idea that the global financial stakes are shifting and that there is going to be a new financial world order. Like new world order, that's total conspiracy. 
Well, exactly. Immediately, as soon as you were, while that grabs attention, (laughs) immediately, as soon as you use those words, right, it causes, it's almost like detaches people from that because as soon as anything that sounds conspiratorial, even though you have common sense, because I looked into your background, (laughs) right, you know what you're talking about. You worked with these Fortune 500 companies, you you worked in finance, you you have a very solid background. You're not really what I would define as a conspiracy theory at all. I think you're just using it as a as a as a way to talk about these issues. But do, are you afraid that or do you have any hesitation about that at all that it can stop people who are kind of sensible people from even uh, listening? Because some of these issues that get brought up, you know, I bring them up and I think they're very legitimate issues. But uh, as soon as somebody mentions WEF, people sort of stop listening because they immediately go, oh, that person is a conspiracy theorist. All right. So and I think it's legitimate. And so I'll tell you about my approach. So new world order. Do you think that President Joe Biden is a conspiracy theorist? Probably not. <laughs> okay. So we we all may have very different things. We think about President Biden, good or bad. I don't think conspiracy theorists is one of the things that's normally attached to the president. Sure. So if you go to the White House's website and you look up Joe Biden's comments on March 21st of 2022 to the Business Roundtable, and the Business Roundtable is the collection of CEOs of all the major U.S. corporations, especially publicly traded corporations, biggest companies in, in, in the country. He gave a speech, and in the speech, he said, you know, there's a, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's, it's pretty close, you know, there's going to be a new global economic order it's something that happens every three or four generations. There's going to be a new world order out there, quote, and we've got to lead it. So you've got the president of the United States talking about the new world order and talking about leading it. Now, when he talks about that, he's talking to the, you know, again, connected business leaders. So they're the ones that want to lead it. It's not you and me, probably. Um, but he also referenced you know, the other piece, which you know, many scholars talk about, is the fact that this happens on a regular basis. The reality is that the U.S. has been the center of the global financial universe with the world's reserve currency for about 80 years. But we haven't always been the center of the financial universe. Before us, it was the British. And before the British, it was the Dutch. And I'm pretty sure, you know, at those point in times, just as we feel very invincible and we've been through, you know, incredible prosperity and we can't really see anything that's different, I'm sure the people of Britain felt the same way and I'm sure the Dutch felt the same way. So, So if you study sort of the rhymes of history, you know, this is something that happens fairly predictably. We are in kind of late stage cycle and, you know, the, the idea that somehow we're going to buck history and be the center of the financial universe forever, you know, that in itself seems more like a conspiracy theory than the reality, not to mention that we have seen um, a lot of shifts happening. We've seen de-dollarization happening you know, in China, in the Middle East, in the you know, North African countries, um, you know, certainly, obviously, what happened with Russia uh, and some of the sanctions that were put against them as they invaded Ukraine and, and weaponizing the U.S. dollar and freezing um, their reserve assets. These are all things that are shifting what's happening globally financially. So when I put it in those terms, and I tell you that this is on the White House's website, and I point you to the history of it, and I tell you about the other people who are talking about this, it doesn't really sound conspiratorial anymore, right? We take it and and we give it a lot of context and framework. And that's why I think this book is so important, because a lot of the people who have been talking about this stuff are, you know, in many ways, cuckoo. And, you know, it doesn't mean that they're not right some of the time, but their credibility, you know, has been burned or tainted, you know, rightly or wrongly, that's just it. So I'm trying to let the people and, and you know, speak for themselves. I let the, the WEF speak for themselves. I let Larry Fink from BlackRock speak for himself. I let the people who are competing with you to buy homes speak for themselves. I'm letting Joe Biden talk about the new world order. So it, it's you can't say that's my conspiracy theory. I, I'm just connecting the dots based on all of the information that's out there. And I have more than you know 600 sources, many of them, which are the 
NPRs and New York Times and Washington Posts of the world um, that I think that most people who might dismiss a conspiracy theory would say, okay, that's kind of hard to, for me to argue around. I, I think that's quite fair. <laughs> I think facts are really <laughs> what you want uh, to, to use. Um, um, it's hard to argue with those. Um, I mean, some of the things that I've noticed is definitely a, a consolidation of, of power and assets. And, you know, you were talking about the U.S. currency, and that is something that may very well be on its way out as, as the sort of the, the, the powerful currency. But also cash, I think, is, is something that's being phased out. And I saw that accelerated during COVID, you know, sort of under the premise of, uh, you know, it's not safe to use cash. So you saw all these uh, stores not using cash, and that hasn't really changed, even if we're sort of back to normal, quote unquote. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, are you concerned about uh, currencies being digitized because that seems to be, you know, because everything is now digital. I, I was even speaking to my, my parents where they're like, well, everything is, is, you know, they don't have any printouts even anymore of, of what their bank account balances are. Everything is online and that can be changed. And how do they prove that, you know, and I said, well, there might be some kind of a record you can keep track of, but really, <laughs> how do you know, how do you prove? And also everything is monitored. And even when we're talking about you know, the big hope was sort of decentralized currencies. And, yeah. you know, I have mixed feelings, uh, very, very mixed feelings about those. But at the same time, you know, that a lot of people believe that to be the antidote. But at the same time, you saw the banks and institutions, they took sort of hold of that because I've noticed because I tried to buy some uh, just, you know, to experiment with that. And, you know, I couldn't even do that without the permission of my bank. So yeah. what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> So, you know, obviously the whole idea of digitizing the currency is something that the casinos figured out a long time ago, right? When, when you take, the further away you move from that form factor that you're actually holding, you know, I've got some some silver and some copper here. And, you know, like the, the further away that you move from like these things, the less real it seems. And so the casinos figured that out, right? If you, you convert to chips, or even better, you put your little card in the slot the machine, card, you yeah. get credits, right? Then it doesn't seem like it's real money. It's very different than I'm feeding that dollar out of my pocket. And, you know, the further you move away from that, um, you know, kind of the, the less control you have over it. And like you said, you know, as you kind of move through the different iterations of being digital, certainly credit cards and debit cards and peer-to-peer -peer payment systems and, and all of those kinds of things, digital payment systems, um, you know, you have less, there's sort of like less op opaqueness for you. There's more transparency to other entities about what it is that you're doing, more of a track record. The ultimate concern here is something called a CBDC or a central bank digital currency. And I don't know if this is something that you and your audience have spent a lot of time with, but basically they're trading off of what you alluded to, Catherine, is sort of this interest in decentralized currency. If you think of Bitcoin or, or some of these other cryptocurrencies, they came into be that the thesis, the raison d'etre was that the Federal Reserve and other central banks, along with their governments, couldn't be trusted, that they've been debasing our currency. They've been making you know horrible decisions. Our purchasing power is getting killed. They're manipulating it. As I talked about with Russia, they're even weaponizing it at the government level. So wouldn't it be great if we could transact freely in a way that didn't have this, this middleman? Now, I'm with you. I, I like I'm not sure that that thesis necessarily is 100% accurate. I'm not arguing that. Like that's up to the the Bitcoin people, but you know, it, it the thesis there is is why there's there's so much interest in cryptocurrency. What the Federal Reserve and the government have done is gone. Oh no, <laughs> this would threaten us because we want the power. We need to control the money. If we don't control the money, we don't have the power. We can't control the people. This is awful. So let's confuse the ever living daylights out of them. And let's pretend, let's create a highly centralized currency that we can control. And we'll just tell everybody it's cryptocurrency. 
And that's basically what they're seeding with the CBDC or a digital dollar is that they're testing this out and they're already seeding and trying to conflate it and tell people, oh, it's just like cryptocurrency, except it's safe from the government because, you know, the government makes everything so safe and great for us. And for, you know, the people who are in the know, obviously, we know that that's ridiculous and the complete opposite of the decentralized currency. But for a lot of people, it sounds great. So this this idea of central bank digital currency, again, let's go back to our cash example because it's the easiest to understand. I've got, you know, my coins or my dollars. I'm going to pay for something. Now imagine that they're microchipped and that the Federal Reserve and the government are monitoring every transaction. And so they know as soon as you scan this exactly what you're doing. And then because they fully control it, they can weigh in and they could go, Carol, I'm sorry. I know you like burgers, uh, but you've eaten far too many this month. Burgers, we potentially think are bad for the environment. So we're just going to shut it down and you can't have that. And if you want to get some, you know, fake meats, then maybe we'll let you do it. Or, you know, Catherine, you said something bad on Facebook or Twitter. You know, we're just going to punish you and you need to go back home today or, or whatever it is. And, uh, and again, yeah, and that's the thing. I used to be somebody who did think, you know, what are the odds of me ever being somebody who would be on the other side of the government? But these days, it really doesn't take much, right? And we see, and especially with big tech, and that's what, something I want to talk to you about is, you know, with big tech in particular, they do have, you know, because we rely so much, and our whole lives, you know, are so reliant in, on that ecosystem, right? And because I've talked to so many people who've been cut off from it. Uh, so this is happening in a real way. You know, it hasn't happened to me yet. <laughs> but you know, I, at this point, you know, I could be very much on that way. And I think of myself as a fairly reasonable person, uh, not particularly radical at all. There's but no, there's no room for reason and logic. There, in there, is, there isn't. <laughs> but I know people whose bank accounts have been cut off, their banks were right. shut often without even an explanation, their LinkedIn, their Uber, their PayPal. So right. all of these things that they, we rely on to be part of society uh, can be at any moment because of sort of yep. wrong think, right? Bingo, bingo. You are like connecting the dots for me. I love this. It's like you know, right in the <laughs> middle right. here. We saw this, right? We saw this during the Twitter files. We saw this during COVID that this whole idea of wrong think and, you know, kind of a very informal um, social credit that involved cancel culture and just not being on the right side of things um, has started to creep in. And CBDC does become just one of several ways that that can be enforced, but it's the ultimate way because it's the Fed and the government together with complete control and you've got absolutely no other option. Now, big tech things, we'll come back to that in a second, is an issue, uh, but this is, a, is really scary for your freedom and your agency that they can just go ahead and do this. And there are so many easy ways for them to get this entrenched without people even realizing it. I mean, they can say, we're going to do universal basic income, but we can only do it with digital dollars. They can say, we're going to control inflation. Inflation is still out of control. It's eating up your purchasing power. If you do the digital dollar, then we'll have the tool to control it. And you know how they'll control it is because when they don't want you to spend, they'll just shut down everybody's spending. They'll just literally make that a policy and that will be the way to control inflation because nobody can spend any money. Um, or, you know, they may do what they did during stimulus and rely on people's ignorance. I'll give you a hundred digital dollars, Catherine, if you just give me one of your dollars. And you go, oh my God, I'm going to be a millionaire. This is amazing. Because most people don't understand the debasement of currency and how that works the same way that they wanted their thousand dollars of, you know, Biden bucks or Donnie dollars and didn't realize they're paying like $7,000 extra a year for that for the rest of their life because of inflation. So, you know, these are all like very clear ways that they can entrench it and use it as an enforcement mechanism. And I'm with you like 10 years ago, if you said to me, Carol, do you really think that this is likely to happen when, you know, there's possibility, but like a you know, that seems kind of pretty far out there. And then we went through COVID and you can no longer with a straight face go, yeah, that would never happen. 
Not to mention that, you know, we're getting closer to, to China every day in terms of our behavior system. And they already have a CBDC and they already have a formalized social credit system. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of things that are happening. Plus, you know, the G7 came out with their combined principles for retail facing CBDCs. And the Fed did a major, the New York Fed did a major pilot program with lots of financial services institutions. So you don't do those things if that's not something that you're actually actively considering. Yeah, very, well, very speaking scary. of China, speaking of China, and this is another area where, yeah, I didn't think that would happen, but COVID sort of did prove because, you know, mandates, but also vaccine passports, right? And and specifically watching people's behavior in terms of compliance, because, you know, you could argue about all sorts of things around the pandemic, but there are certain things that you could also say very objectively that were compliance behaviors that weren't really warranted, right? Because there was no logic or science behind them. So I wrote, um, I wrote an entire book on this too. So yes, I'm very, oh, very, very much on, <laughs> on the so, forefront of that. <laughs> so it really showed that our society is just is able to comply because I think where um, China's, um, you know, wh while we kind of hear about China's social credit and we kind of cringe about it here in the West, we think, oh, this is only something that would happen in China. It's very clear <laughs> that, you know, they do have a more compliant culture, but it's clear that we, when we are faced particularly with fear, and I think that was the big factor. People were afraid. And when fear is, and, and also so, social kind of pressure, when you kind of uh, divide people into, into groups and categories, people are willing to sort of go with things. So, you know, well, it's, even, it's even more than that, though, right? It's not, it's not just, the, well, you did write a book. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not, even, it's not even the pandemic. It's also just, you know, being on the wrong side of, you know, the current thing. It's that wrong thing that you were talking about. Look at what they tried to do to Joe Rogan. Look at what they tried to do to Dave Chappelle. Look what they did to Ellen DeGeneres. You did something that some group of people said is not palatable to us. And they were trying to take away not just their freedoms of expression, but also their financial opportunities, right? Cancel culture is that seed of social credit that then becomes formalized into state well, sponsored social credit. it's the seed credits. of that. It's the seed of that, but it's one thing to do it to someone else. And it's another thing to be complacent in that being done to you. And so social right. credit then becomes something where the system turns on you and you are a compliant part of it. So how does that go from China to us? Because yeah, we I think are seeing early sort of, you know, or could be seeing early, because I, I think with something like the vaccine passports in particular, because uh, I know yeah. when I looked into it, there was definitely an intention behind it, not a conspiracy theory, because it was literally a program that was launched. Uh, if you looked into it, where there were some intentions of doing other things with these passports once once they were implemented, you know, for the greater good or whatnot, uh, as was just yeah, for your, for your convenience, yes, for, for your convenience, convenience and benefit yeah. for the children, really. <laughs> yeah. And I guess that's how it starts. But then I remember noticing just a very basic thing, right? I noticed that, well, when I go in with this vaccine passport uh, into, into a restaurant and I go with someone else, well, now, A, my, my private information, it wasn't just my, I had to also show ID. So now my privacy is gone and the person I'm with, now people can connect us and I might not want that. And right. when I spoke out about it, <laughs> You know, I was called all sorts of things, even though, you know, a few years ago would have been a very reasonable objection. So where are we kind of going with that? And what are the conditions that are allowing for that? Yeah. So if you think of the, the vaccine passport in the U.S., you know, mostly it was an, an analog form factor. It was this card with some stickers and, you know, somebody at Walgreens drew an X on it or, you know, whatever. Um, if you were in New York, you could get the Excelsior Pass Plus and you could digitize that for your convenience. Um, and in other countries, they obviously took it to the next level with things like QR codes and, and whatnot. Uh, we had that experience traveling in Europe or that, you know, some of this information becomes digitized and you need to get a, a pass and, and whatnot. And so th they kind of had this form factor because they weren't ready for it. But now you've got all these people who are really just looking to help you. People like, you know, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Facebook and Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, and they're coming together 
um, with this group that's called ID2020.org um, to you know, focus on digital IDs. And really, again, it's just for your convenience. That way you don't have to carry around your analog card or, you know, a, a picture of it. You might lose it. So you can put that card, you know, potentially into some digital format. And then you know where this goes as well. Maybe you just connect your financial information and just because it, it would be easier. And oh, well, once you have a financial, why don't we just put all of your information? Because it would just be easier for you to have this all in one place. And that's how you start getting the you know, technology mechanism to collect this information and this, this form factor at scale to then implement something that is more like a, a Chinese social credit system, which, by the way, is still evolving. It's a little bit less evolved, I think, than some people think. Um, it's done on a region by region basis. Each region has different kinds of grades. So it's not like one grade throughout China. Some have letter grades, some have number grades. But the thing is, it's all based on the whim of whatever that region thinks is, is important. And then they're the ones that get to decide. So like you get good points for doing things like donating blood or going to see your elderly parents or saying nice things about the government on social media. And then you get black marks if you do things like jaywalk or take up too much room on an airplane, which is really annoying. And those people should be punished, but probably not by the government. <laughs> um, and, you know, of course, saying bad things about the government. But you can see where that can go wrong. Well, very, and some people quickly. think that's a, it's a good thing. Like, for example, if you live in a country like Malaysia, uh, you know, there's these trade-offs, right? You give up your personal freedom, <laughs> but you have a lot more safety, less crime. Uh, you can leave your laptop for a day and probably nobody's going to steal it. So there are people who do advocate. I mean, there's a reason why these things yeah, and listen, happen, there, right? there are there are plenty of countries around the world where that's, you know, Dubai, I think is another one of those. And if, if you want to live in that you know type of regime, feel free. But in terms of being the only bastion of individual rights and freedom um, and, and protecting those for, you know, not just ourselves, but for the future generations and frankly, for the world, because there's no other, you know, kind of place waiting in the wings to step into that role. Um, you know, it, it's against every level of freedom. And certainly while sometimes that works on a, a niche basis, we have all seen where that goes terribly wrong. And when you give up your freedoms, how quickly that can shift and end up in a really bad position um, for individuals. So, and, you know, and it, I think it's so important to note too that you know we do do that voluntarily a lot of times for convenience. And one correct. very simple, uh, you know, credit cards. And I'm very guilty of that. You know, it's convenient for me to use my credit card everywhere. I don't use cash very much. You know, and uh, and you know what, everything is tracked by that. And if you disconnect my credit card, and there's no more cash, what am I going to do? And it's something that you really should think of, about and plan for um, from all different. And, and that's part of the, the the point of this book is that there are these forces coming at you from all different methods. So like we don't know, it could be the CBDC. It could be big tech saying eh, you're on the wrong side of things. You know, it, it, there are all these different places where this could end up happening. And so what happens in any of those scenarios? So you have to really empower yourself with the knowledge to be able to think through those particular scenarios and prepare for, yeah, if I'm cut off because of A, B, C, or D, like how am I getting food? How am I paying my rent? How am I, you know, getting the medical care that I need? And then, you know, even a step further, that's kind of the, the, the disconnection from your assets. But there's also, like we talked about the social credits, the cancel culture, you know, the people coming after your finance, your, your personal standing, your social standing, which cuts you off from opportunities to gain wealth and coming after your job. You know, if you didn't get a vaccine, they took away your job or, if, you know, you work for a small business that they shut down, they took away your job. So that's actually taking away your ability to make money. So there are all these different kind of ways that they can take away the lead in to make the money or the money that you've actually accumulated. And again, well, you and need to be prepared great, and plan for it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a great segue into, you know, property rights and ownership and what, because right now, you know, a lot of people have 
you know, maybe a bit of cash, maybe some investments on the market, um, something like, uh, for example, you know, I thought that land or, or property would be a yeah. good investment, but a lot of people can't afford that because, for example, um, a lower income uh, family, you know, even yeah, like lower income bracket used to be able to afford a house at a certain yeah. point. And now you can be upper upper middle class kind of income level and you can't afford it in most places. So, you know, first of all, I'd love to get a sense of like, why, why did that happen? And yeah. is, is there a way around that? Uh, what does it make sense for people to even invest in? <laughs> these days. So, so let me let me take it from a very specific top talking point, because I think this will help to, to frame it for people. Um, first of all, if you look at millennials, they actually on an inflation adjusted basis, earn more at age 40 than the boomers did or than Gen X did before them, which I think most people would be surprised by. They would think with, you know, even once you adjust for inflation, that that wouldn't be the case. But on inflation adjusted basis, they earn more. But like you said, they have a very little percentage of the wealth. So what happens? And basically what happened is rogue monetary and fiscal policy, um, particularly on the monetary side, and particularly this is accelerated um, over the past, call it 13 to 15 years, although you know there were things that were done previous to that. But when we came out of the Great Recession financial crisis, we kind of went into this unprecedented historic of, a period of monetary policy, and they artificially suppressed interest rates and printed all of this money out of nowhere. And what that does in the financial markets is it gives corporate investors who have the, the balance sheets who can absorb this kind of money the ability to borrow very cheaply and invest. And when they borrow very cheaply and invest, they invest in assets. There's more dollars chasing the scarce assets and those assets increase in price. So when everybody told you that there was no inflation from like, you know, 2007 till you know, 2020, that's totally BS. There was tons of inflation. It was just in assets and the people who were wealthy and well-connected benefited. So they love that kind of inflation. Meanwhile, savers were getting you know, no return on their money. Retirees were getting no return on their money. People who were struggling you know, to, to pay for things were seeing their, the value of, of what they were um, you know, buying diminish. So it, it's very much this you know, non-merit-based inequality gap that, that's rising. So, you know, out of the, the Great Recession financial crisis, then you have all of this money, it's inflating different assets. And one area that it ended up going into inflating that had never existed before was single family homes. So you had all of these homes that were foreclosed on and went into short sale because of what happened, you know, prior to the Great Recession that led up to it. But, the, you know, the banks in Wall Street got bailed out. These corporate investors got tons of money and regular Americans lost their property. And so Wall Street decided, hey, we're going to go in and these are all great rates and we're just going to start buying them up. There was no meaningful institutional capital in the single family home market before 2010. End of story, multiple sources throughout financial media that will tell you this. So then now <laughs> they said, oh, this is great. We're going to go in. And it's not like they're buying the houses, fixing them up and flipping them. They want to rent you the American dream where we talk, where we started this conversation. Mm. They want to take a home, which is not only like the physical symbol. When you think about the American dream, right? You think about the house, the owning the, the, owning fence, the house, yeah. the picket, white picket fence, right? And so not only is it symbolic, but there's a reason for that. And that's because on a dollar basis, it is the largest asset in most households wealth. So most household wealth across households is in the home. And so the idea now that you're going to have Wall Street come in with this cheap money that was gotten at your expense, at Main Street's expense, and now they're going to use that to compete with you. And as of last year, about 21% of the homes in this country were purchased by corporate investors. So that's one out of every five homes that wow. you know, young people are you know, losing out on because the prices have been inflated because of all of these corporate buyers who are coming in. There's limited supply. 
And that's at, a, at the local level. You know, there's lots of zoning and, and rules and reasons. Um, they screwed up the labor force. So there isn't enough labor to come and even you know, get these houses built if they want them. There's regulation that adds almost $100,000 a year to the cost of new homes, so on and so on and so on. So, of course, people aren't going to be able to afford them because they are now pushing that from Main Street into Wall Street. And so if you're a young person, you're probably saddled with college debt, which we haven't even gotten to part of this yeah. discussion. <laughs> And then, you know, they're, so they're loading you up with that, with a bad ROI. And now you've got to compete with a corporate buyer that's got, you know, all kinds of money to make a cash offer and isn't even going to go look at the house. They're just like, we don't care. We'll buy it because we're just going to rent it out anyway. Uh, this is a really bad turning point in terms of ownership. And so, you know, if you are a young person or you're somebody in a lower income area, you might want to rethink where you live to be able to not be in an area that is so competitive with you know some of these corporate buyers and you know potentially there's going to be an entry point here because i think a lot of people also bought property for airbnbs and things like that that you know maybe haven't panned out so there there may be a window there and take advantage and get something maybe smaller than you thought or not in the the you know your number one area but still that opportunity to get some ownership now i understand it's not perfect ownership because you still have property taxes. But as I said, it is that number one asset across households. And then, you know, you do want to diversify with other things that are tangible. Um, you know, things like gold, silver, you know, coins like that. Um, if you are in a bracket where you and some other friends maybe can go in on a farm or other productive land, you know, that's a big one investing in the stock market, investing in your own business, like whatever it is, and having a diversified portfolio, because that's the challenge here is that when we're looking at this broad array of things that are going wrong and these kind of forces coming at us trying to grab our wealth, like we don't know what's going to happen in terms of which one's going to happen first, and we don't know duration. So it could take a year and it could take 25 years and you have to right. be prepared for, and hedged for either scenario. And so, you know, if, if I, if I had the timeline perfectly, you know, I'd be on a yacht in the Mediterranean and not okay. on this podcast. It's the hardest thing in, fi in finance because you can see the trajectory and there's so many factors that factor into timing, but you still do need to protect yourself and you need to get yourself in the habit of thinking about ownership of things, getting away from the, the frivolous spending that leaves you with nothing and focusing on the things where you're like, okay, I've, I've spent money, but it's an investment, something that I have and that I can bank on. So tangible things. And meanwhile, yeah. it, you know, so it's kind of interesting because I have noticed a bit of a trend um, throughout some of the VCs and things like that, even of buying land, uh, yes. and, <laughs> which is so it, it speaks to what you're saying. Um, but, and, and you mentioned, um, that the Biden administration actually paid farmers not to farm and instead keep the land for conservation. So that kind of stood out for me. And I'm wondering why that is like, is there an intentional plan to kind of keep people from owning land? Yeah. So certainly, um, you know, in terms of, you know, one of the things I advocate is, you know, these wealthy and well-connected who want you to own nothing, they are not giving up their property. In fact, they are doubling down on things like hard assets. And so really look to what they're doing and not what they're saying. And we are seeing whether it's, you know, Bill Gates or Harvard University's endowments, you know, all these people who are buying up land and water rights and, and things like that. Um, so yeah, it is it is something that you really do need to be thinking about in terms of Biden. Um, so to be fair, this is something that has happened under previous administrations, but he has sort of accelerated it. They want more land for conservation. But if you look at even what's happening in the Netherlands and in, in Ireland and other areas where they're talking about killing off um, cattle and you know not letting the farmers do what they've done historically for the quote unquote good of the climate, even though these same people have waterfront mansions and are flying around on private jets, uh, there is enough real concern 
to be concerned about the food supply. Uh, the, the WEF and, you know, one of the things I noticed when I was researching the book is that the same names would pop up over and over again. So, you know, people are like, oh, the WF's not that powerful. Okay. But like in everything that I researched, <laughs> they came up, the UN came up, BlackRock came up, you know, it, it's like at some point it's no longer coincidental. And so they have something in partnership with the prime minister of the Netherlands, surprise, surprise, um, called the Food Action Alliance which is looking to reshape and rethink and reimagine the way that we do everything with food from the way that we grow it to consume it. And it's like, okay, we didn't need to do this until you guys got involved here. So I do think that just as you're, you're hearing the things about, you know, kind of fake meat and bugs, and it sounds real conspiratorial right now, but as we've kind of seen all of this progress there's enough real tangible data to say, yes, they are going after this land. It could just be because it's a scarce good resource. Either way, a good, good way for you to, if you can, to perhaps own. But also, you know, if you can get a group of people together and, you know, support a farmer and own that land, um, you know, that might be a good place that if, you know, things go sideways where you can actually get some food. So, I do think we need to be thinking about that. Water is another one that I'm super concerned about because Wall Street is eyeing that to financialize it. And um, more than you know, they already have with bottled water, I guess. Yeah. So like literally having a, a market for water and moving it from one place to another based on what they think the highest use is and, and the value. So that that could be oh, it's not as, as you know valuable to grow food. It's much more valuable to fill up a swimming pool in Phoenix. Okay, well, that's great, but then we're not going to have any food or the food's going to end okay. up being so expensive. So again, these are all just kinds of like seeds of things, just like they did with housing that we really do need to keep an eye on. And if there's any direct tangible way for you guys to, to fight back against that, again, getting with neighbors and groups um, and maybe pooling resources, you know, that's another area to think about. Yeah. And I, look, I imagine that not every single suggestion that even the WEF makes is like horrible, like the crickets, the overfocus on the crickets, even though I will not be caught dead eating one uh, or alive um, <laughs> just because of the ick factor alone. I mean, right. it is protein. People in other countries eat it. I think there's a little bit of uh, too much attention being focused to that and not the things that you've been talking about or we've right. been talking about. Yeah. I but mean, it's, it's all about choice, right? <laughs> like if you want to eat a cricket, like that's great. Enjoy. Or fake meat. You what, know, what, I don't yeah, eat what, meat. Yeah, what, <laughs> whatever you want. But you know, you need to be able to have that choice. And we can't exactly. have people, especially a small group of people, central planning what's good for everyone, because anytime that's ever been done in history, it's been a giant failure. People starve, people die. It's ended in, you know, lots of just massive chaos. So we, we, we need to keep an eye on that. Exactly. And even with meat, even though I'm somebody who's not a meat eater, right, there are people who feel terrible when they don't eat meat. So I wouldn't want anybody to be deprived of that particular choice. My, but my, hus of my husband is a oh. meatitarian, so we can't actually go to a restaurant if it's not heavy on the meat. Meat. So, there yeah. you go. There you go. And I would not <laughs> want to prevent him from eating his no, meat. So no. <laughs> it's, it's the people who do, who start yelling. They, they give people like me a bad name, you know, <laughs> and I don't want a bad name. We're all for free choice. If this is, if this is good for you, Correct. you want to do it, you should be able to do it. Exactly. I'm not I'm not here to decide for other people. But uh, speaking of deciding for other people, um, <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of talk about ESG and it yeah. seemingly came out of nowhere. And people seem to have a hard time understand, like understanding why it's even happening or the benefit is to companies. But companies, big, huge companies for the, almost every company now uh, have adapted it. They track it. They do it. Advertising companies now uh, track it and, uh, and, and even pick where they advertise uh, based on, you know, even the social media platforms where they advertise, they might track it based on their <laughs> ESG scores. So why? Why can you explain to to me and and my audience why that happened and why they yeah. go along with it? Like, what's the benefit to them? Is what I'm really curious about. 
So interestingly, ESG is sort of a, the like bastardized, you know, child of Klaus Schwab of the WEF's initial focus, which is this concept of stakeholder capitalism. And if you think about stakeholder capitalism, you know, here, which means nothing because those two things are diametrically opposed. Your know, capitalism is about ownership, as we talked about, and those are shareholders, people who actually have a vested interest in a company. A stakeholder is just like anybody who wants to impose their whim on a company. So being a stakeholder from the get-go is opposed to this concept of ownership. So if you think about being anti-ownership, he's been pushing this since 1971. He's a very persistent um, gentleman. And so, you know, he's been really kind of playing around and ESG is taken on a bunch of different names and has been, um, you know, found sort of a partner in the UN that's been trying to get it out there with their principles for sustainable investing and other concepts since like the 90s. And so there's really been a long road um, in terms of building this up. I think the real turning point um, in my you know, research that I noted was when BlackRock really got involved. And Larry Fink, who is the um, the head of BlackRock, and BlackRock is the largest asset manager in the world. They have around 10-ish million of assets under management. Obviously, the market goes up and down. It could be nine and change or you know, whatever. But at one point, it was, you know, it was clocked in at, at 10 trillion. And so they have just an enormous amount of influence in terms of business in the markets. And he has been entrenched as a partner in the World Economic Forum and, you know, with all these other groups, the UN, that have been trying to push um, for these ideals. And what I consider ESG to be really is business social credit, that basically a group of people decide these are the things that we want to do today. And so we're going to use money and uh, our influence to bully companies into doing this. And I think that's really what's happened. Um, you know, they sort of, if you look at like the searches for ESG and ESG investing, which I show in the book and in, in terms of charts, they really started to spike as BlackRock started putting out their letters to CEOs uh, and to shareholders about use, how important ESG was and how they were gonna be using their capital to you know, vote against management teams and, and boards of directors that didn't follow what it was that they thought was important. And you know, some conferences that were happening all around at the same time that really started pushing this. That got the business roundtable, who we talked about previously, but CEOs of major companies to sign on to this. And I really think, you know, it's sort of like a hostage taking situation. We've seen what these purveyors of capital have been able to do the fossil fuel industry. We don't like you. So this isn't aligned with what we want to push. So we are going to like very actively direct capital away from you. And if you're the CEO of a company, you kind of can't afford that to happen quite literally. So they just kind of say, well, you know, we just go along with the program and then, you know, that's kind of managing our risk. We don't have to, to worry about any of these other things. I've talked to CEOs of public companies, people who are, you know, the lead of ESG or on the ESG team within companies that are both public and private. They've never heard in many cases of the World Economic Forum. They don't know where ESG comes from. They can't really define it. They just think it's like one of those weird corporate things that like some consultants that they, they just kind of have to deal with. And they're hoping that they don't have to spend too much time on it or somebody's convinced them it's a money-making opportunity for them. And so these really harsh um, you know, ideas that are messing with the capital of this country and, and frankly, using your capital, you know, through your, your investments and through your pension funds and retirement funds to then bully companies into making decisions that aren't in the best interest of their shareholders, but are, you know, kind of blind with these political objectives is just absolute utter insanity. And so you know, we've started to see pushback you know, at the state level um, and other levels, you know, against this. 
but it's going to show up in another form because it's too too powerful. Baron, well, is it not? Is it not being getting pushed back from the corporations themselves since it's not a good return on their investment? Or you would not think as it's not a good return? Not as much as you might think, because there's that fear of being cast outside of groupthink. You know, you, you may get a little bit of that, and we may end up seeing more of that. But the really that the pushback is coming from places like the states and groups who are interested in, in protecting fiduciary rights more than the companies. And look at that, like how many companies have gotten themselves embroiled in all kinds of insanity that they probably wouldn't have if they didn't feel like there was this kind of threat hanging over them. I guess it's kind of in the same way that, you know, people don't speak up about ideas. Like there's so many bad ideas in society right, right now floating around that most people that I know uh, of all sorts of, you know, ideologies uh, don't agree with, but are completely terrified to speak up and, right. I, and they lose their jobs. Again, this is like yeah. you know, financial hostage taking. I don't want to, to lose my job. I don't want there to be backlash. So I'm just going to go along with the program. And even though it may you know, hurt our returns in the, the short term, like at least I'm not losing the biggest investors, the biggest pools of capital long term, because if that happens, then I'm totally screwed. And if I'm outed, what else happens to me? And so, you know, it really is the ultimate bullying tactic. And I think as more people become aware of it, I'm hoping it's one of the things the book will do. I know it will land in the hands of people who right now think ESG is a great thing. And I think that when they start to see where it came from and how it's being used and how it shifts, I mean, Catherine, that's one of the crazy things is that, you know, what is considered good ESG changes on a whim. I mean, think about Tesla, for example, you know, they got kicked out of one of the ESG indices when Elon Musk decided that he was going to buy Twitter because they didn't like Elon Musk and his commitment to, to free speech. So they, they put fossil fuel companies in there and they took out the electric vehicle company. And that is, again, business social credit. That's not about any sort of specific ideals. And we've seen Elon call ESG the devil. He actually responded when I talked about this on Twitter directly to me about this because he has been at the center. He's been you know on the wrong side of ESG right think. And he has been punished. It has been used to directly punish his company and all of his shareholders because of that. Do you think in general, these, these companies, including the tech companies, are they, are they trying to gather just kind of centralized power in the hands of these corporations or is it, is it, is it, are they lockstep with government or is it these kind of the the Charles, uh, the Schwabs of the world or or what we call sort of elite Bill Gates types? I mean, I think that in many ways, you know, a lot of these tech companies are de facto government. I mean, the, the things that they're doing and the power that they have over speech and our sort of rights, um, you know, kind of mimic a government. In, in some cases, they're working, as we saw with social media, via the Twitter files, they're working lockstep with government. Um, in many cases, they have more users than large countries around the world. Some of them have larger market caps than the GDPs of most of the nations in the world. So they are these really powerful entities and we don't have any sort of you know rights like we do with the government, which are already being trampled. But then, you know, in the in the digital sphere, and you talked about all the people you know have been cut off from, you know, what I would consider basic infrastructure. Um, it it really is terrifying, and it, it's it's a different time for tech because tech used to be, hey, we're going to you know democratize this and give people the ability to use this to for more wealth creation. And now it's sort of the opposite. It's it's cutting people off. You have these, you know, kind of duopolies or, or oligopolies of just a handful of folks with no competition that are extracting rents and are just another group that you know wants to take your life and you know, rent it back to you as a service or a subscription. You know, what's kind of interesting here is that you've got people who on the one hand say, well, we shouldn't have the government interfere in things, including capitalism, right? And on the other hand, you, you could make the arguments, well, it should be the role of the government to protect our our rights uh, and, and infringement of our rights from these kind of capitalistic yeah. entities uh, like big tech and, 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 and just big industry in general. 
um, but it's not really happening enough. Uh, in fact, sometimes our rights are are being trampled on by by government entities. Uh, and where do you find the that like fine line, I guess, of of not interfering sort of with free enterprise, and on the other hand, protecting individuals? Yeah, so I actually don't think what we have right now is capitalism. You know, we, we were trending towards cronyism. And if you have a situation like with our mobile phones, which are sort of the gateway to moving in a modern society, you have two companies, two operating systems, the iOS and the Android, which cover more than 99% of the planet, you know, not just the US, worldwide. So you have two choices. That's not capitalism. Capitalism is a free market with lots of choices. That's infrastructure. When we well, have someone can make a new one, except it's very difficult when you only have two that are. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just fine. And when we get competition, then it becomes a different thing, just like the mobile phone was competition to the phone. But when you have a, the phone lines, right, back in the day, there's a law that says, you know, the phone companies can't deny you access to the phone because it's, it's basically infrastructure. So, you know, if we can't have this conversation, they go, Carolyn, Catherine, I don't like what you guys are talking about. So we're just going to pull the phones out of your house. Like they just didn't do that. But very easily, we've seen that happen in you know some, some of the town squares, you know, with payment systems, as you talked about. So in areas where it is sort of a monopoly, duopoly, oligopoly, and it's, you know, kind of an infrastructure and there isn't this you know clear capitalism dynamic it should be treated like infrastructure and that's why we do need something like a digital bill of rights to codify and protect our natural rights in this new sphere that clearly wasn't imagined because they are acting as infrastructure and as i said in, in many cases a de facto government yeah, and I guess in many ways, it doesn't even matter what the motivations are of these, again, quote unquote, elites or uh, the Schwabs. Right. Because uh, they may have, they may well have good intentions. I, I don't, I, I don't know that, they, like, you know, some of them might be very much in their self-interest. Some of them might want to do good in the world, might be misguided. <laughs> some of their ideas might even be proved to be good ideas, right? But the, but they think they know better and they are exacting a tremendous control that's concentrated sort of in the hands of the few. And that's really the problem here. Thank yeah. So in this kind of, uh, as we head into this dystopian, potential dystopian future, uh, I guess, what is, what do you think is avoidable in, at this point and what might not be? What is, is it too late when it comes to certain things? And, and what, what is it? <laughs> All right. So to, to wrap up our discussion on hopefully a positive note, because th this is, I wrote you will know nothing to empower you with knowledge because you can't come you know, up with a plan to fight back if you don't know where this is all coming from. And you're going to have to treat each of these forces differently, but we definitely want to fight back. I think the realistic way to approach this because it's very overwhelming when you start thinking about this, like you could really go to a dark place is like, can you change the fact that there is eventually going to be a new financial world order. No, like <laughs> this is the reality in history. But there yeah. are a couple of things that you can do, right? One is that we can delay it. We talked about duration. I mean, this could be hundreds of years off in the distance if we make some of the right choices. So part of you know what you need to do is 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 to help push things in that direction, you know, from a community standpoint to see if we can perhaps delay this. But at a minimum, what you can control is what you're going to do if we end up in this period of chaos and change, because that's the reality is that if there is a shift, it's not just going to be like one day that we wake up and everything's going to be like, OK, kids, well, we know we used to do it like this and now we're going to do it like this. Like this is going to be mass chaos. So this is about giving you the tools so that you can make the behavioral and financial changes and go through that thought process. So like when this happens, you're not surprised and like caught in that state of shock. Like, like what do I do? You've actually been thoughtful about it and you've been planning for it. And you go, OK, I've come to terms with it. And yes, this sucks. And I wish this wasn't the case. But I'm going to at least make sure just like those elite want to come out on top. I want to make sure that I'm OK. And my family's OK and my friends and my community members are okay. 
And so, you know, that is really the, the message. And hopefully the takeaway here is getting those behavioral changes, um, including the financial ones, so that when this does start to move and it's already it's already shifting, but when it starts to move in a different direction, that you're not caught flat footed. Well, I think that's I appreciate the insight very much. It was a really great conversation. And uh, I think some lessons for sure. Uh, I think being able to sort of empower oneself is always uh, is always sort of key because as much as we talk about the problems, I think it's just as important to talk about some of the solutions and yeah. what we can do. Um, and I know your book has a lot of that in, in it as well. Um, why don't you share, you know, how we can find you and when your book comes out, where we, how we can find the book. And I'll also include all of that information as well elsewhere. Fabulous. So the book um, is officially out July 18th, but you can pre-order it now and make sure it gets in your hot little hands by the 18th. If you pre-order it now, it's available everywhere. Like if you want to support big tech, you can go to Amazon. If you want to support a small business, uh, you can go to bookshop.org or your local small business bookseller. And one of the things I'm telling people, this is your first step buy the hard copy don't buy a kindle don't buy an audiobook own something like get in the behavior okay i'm going to actually own a book and let me see what that's like and and break the cycle so that's that's my my ask of you and i, I guarantee you'll find value um otherwise i tend to while they allow me um although i've been a little bit suppressed in terms of my impressions but generally speaking you can find me on twitter at carol j s roth and I've got that handle across other social media, although I don't spend uh, as much time other places. But that's kind of my my spiel. I also um, you know write an economic newsletter that I put out um, you know, links and stuff on Twitter too. So if the book is you know grabs you and you're like, okay, I want to know like what's ahead real time or explain the banking catastrophes or you know all those things that are happening. Um, I also do that kind of economic connecting of the dots. And one of the things that hopefully came across in this conversation is that I write in a style that takes really big concepts and makes them very accessible. Um, you know, my audiences are from novices to pro, but I, you know, I break it down. So all of these things that they're trying to make opaque that you don't understand, I want to make sure you do understand that. It's funny. I was about to say that because I think the systems have gotten increasingly complex. And that's yeah. one of the problems is that uh, because they're so complex, fewer and fewer people are able to understand them. And in a way that takes advantage of of people that lack of understanding is where people get in trouble a lot and it's intentional by the way completely intentional the more opaque it is um you know the easier it is to to exclude you and for you to just kind of go along with that exclusion so again empowering yourself with the knowledge is is important here i really appreciate you joining me and thank you so much for the conversation thanks so much for your time it was fun